What I'd like to speak about today is, in a certain sense, um, what is the sequence of events that takes place when the Mashiach comes? And the real question, of course, in a certain sense is, how did he do it? Well, how can he change the world? Uh, because you have to remember, in Egypt there was one country and one dictator, Parai, Pharaoh, right? That's all there was. So if God wants to take the Jews out, all he has to do is, right, smash one country, right, and overthrow one dictator. That's all. Mm-hmm. really wasn't that difficult. Of course, all the makas, makot, of course, miraculous. Uh, but it's much easier. It's only one country, even if that country is the greatest country in the world. Today, the Jews are spread out throughout the entire world, you know, which itself is a miracle. <clears throat> there is no nation in the world that is as dispersed as the Jewish people. Think about that. The Jews have between 14 and 15 million people. That number is less than one quarter of 1% of the world's population. Assuming the world's population is, let's say, 7 billion, 7.5 billion people. So it's nothing. It's a joke. Yet those one, less than one quarter of 1% of the world's population is spread out in every single country in the world. I mean, there are even Jews in Iceland. I'm sure if you go to Tahiti, it's probably somebody's got a store on the main drag in Tahiti. It's astounding. There are Jews all over the world. And then, of course, the question is, what does all that mean? And why and so on? So if the Mashiach comes and brings uh, a gula, a redemption to all the Jews, how in the world is he going to do it? You know? <clears throat> how do you reach millions of people that are spread all over the world. That is the problem that seeks a resolution. It's an interesting question. Because remember, it's not one country. The UN has 193 countries in it. And believe me, the Jews are spread over all 193. How do you reach them? And we are talking about the redemption. The redemption or the Gula is the greatest single event in the history of the universe. There is nothing greater, not only in terms of the Jews being redeemed, but in terms of the world changing, the whole creation changes. There is nothing, if you live to see it, which I hope we all do, there is nothing that can even rival the grandeur of this event nothing because it will be miraculous totally through and through you see that's what I, I want to talk about but I just want to make a note uh, in terms of <clears throat> I, I mentioned that this year is the Shemitah year Tav Shem Pei Beis 5,782 is the year of Shemitah which we know is the seventh year of a cycle of seven years we also know that seven cycles, which total 49 years, the 50th year is Yolvel, the Jubilee year, and that is the year that everything goes back to the original owner. You know? So obviously that would be very symbolic 
of the redemption, because then everything goes back to God, who is, of course, the owner of everything, right? And so on. And I mentioned also that Robert says that the Mashiach comes in Mitzoy Shemitah, in the year after Shemitah, which is this coming year at the end, right? That's what he says. And what probably is that the Mitzoy Shemitah, hopefully, is the Yovel year, because Yovel is the 50th year. Problem is we lost count of Yovel. We don't know which year is the 50th year. We do know which year is the seventh year, so we just have to count every seven years. The Shemitah. But we don't know of the Shemitahs, which is the last, which is the year before Yovel. We don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting if next year, if this is the 49th year, the seventh Shemitah of that cycle, and next year, right, at the end of the year, is Yovel. Wouldn't that be incredible, huh? And the Mashiach comes. Uh, and I said also, whatever, a little while back, that if if, that if, if the Mashiach does come at the end of Yovel, at the end of the seventh year, then the Shemitah year must be a preparation in some way. It has to prepare. Because God will not bring the Mashiach, you know, uh, suddenly. There has to be a preparation before the redemption. Because the shock would be too great for the entire world, let alone the Jews, and so on. A lot of things have to happen, you know. I also mentioned that Elo, before this year, which is now, that Elo is considered the preparation for Rosh Hashanah, which is next year. So I had mentioned that, but lo and behold, we may see, you remember, tremendous things in Elo, which are, in a certain sense, redemption. Right? So far, we've seen two things. And people don't realize that. You know? What I mean, something in terms of uh, uh, preparation for redemption, that in some capacity, evil is overthrown. You see? So the first thing that we saw was goodbye to Governor Cuomo. Right? Out of nowhere. He stunned the entire New York State by resigning. For what? I mean, it's serious in terms of what he did. It doesn't compare to what he did when he murdered, or he's responsible for the murder, the death of 15,000 nursing home patients. How can you compare an assist of murder to what he, you know, uh, what he abused women and so on? Although it's wrong how you compare the crimes. He's being evicted because of that. And people are stunned that he quit. So that's a first turnaround. It's an interesting turnaround. Because I want to tell you something, that's really what you're looking for. You're looking for the turnaround of evil into good. That's number one. Now, what is also, so Cuomo has lost all credibility for his future. We know that. But there's somebody else who has lost all credibility. Biden. Afghanistan is a destruction of Biden. Because everybody looks at this guy and they say, I can't believe what I'm seeing. This guy doesn't have a clue. He doesn't even know what to do. He holds up in this place in Wilmington, Delaware, right? He doesn't know what to do. He just stares out there. 
And then you realize all the guys who work for him, you know, Secretary of State Blinken, Milley, Chief of Staff, you know, Chief of, uh, Chief of Staff, whatever and so on, you know, none of these guys know what to do even. And how could they have committed such an idiotic plan? You should know one thing. This, this plan, I mean, you want to get out. The real question is, what are they doing in Afghanistan in the first place? And the answer is because that's where Al-Qaeda was. Osama bin Laden, fine. So what you do is you put a, a, you put a base there. And they did. And they wiped them out. But you don't have to nation build. You can't build Afghanistan into a nation. Because it's not a nation. It's tribes. And people don't see themselves as unified. That's the problem. They can never be a nation. So they just spent three, a trillion dollars for nothing. But even if you want to pull out, which they should have pulled out years ago, and just left a big base there, so th- because then Afghanistan doesn't become a terrorist state, right? You want to do that? Okay. So they have a plan. You don't pull out guys the day that you want to pull out. You pull out guys slowly over the weeks, and you leave, leave a major base. You see? It, it's just incredible to watch. So what you realize Biden has done is an act of incredible treachery. How do you do that to Americans, American citizens, right? How do you do that to all those people that helped America? It's an act of incredible betrayal to these people. And then you look at Biden, this guy doesn't have a clue as to what to do. He and all his assistants, also they sound like idiots when they talk about this, you see. But what does that mean? It means that Biden has now lost credibility because they're saying that this is going to mar the reputation of the United States, not just this year, for generations. Because not only that, it projects an aura of tremendous weakness to the world. Who do you think is laughing? China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they're all laughing their heads off. We ought to charge them you know, for the comedy that America just put on, you see. And this is what's happening. So America has lost tremendous credibility, respect, and honor in the world, you see. And, of course, the reason for that is Biden and his crew, his administration. So that's a turnaround, isn't it? That is a turnaround, isn't it? From out of nowhere, God has destroyed the credibility of Biden and his administration and the Democratic Party. And now they're all desperate. They have to get rid of Biden, which is really very bad. You know, they have to get rid of him because they see him as a tremendous liability for the elections that are going to be coming up. They're desperate, you know, and so on, you know. But in any case, of course, the question is what happens after that because Kamala Harris is worse than Biden, you know, I mean, I mean, there's a lot you could say about this woman. None of them are good, you know. And uh, you think Biden is worse. The problem with Biden is that, you know, he can have tremendous amount of Americans against him. I believe Kamala Harris can create a civil war, but she's going to come down with things which are so ridiculous, just to seek power, because she's a power-hungry person, megalomaniac doesn't even really recognize her own incompetence, which is very dangerous. And if that happens, it's very bad. The American may rebel. You never know. 
doesn't take much to ignite America. And I don't know if you realize that, but they say there are 400 million weapons that are in the hands of Americans. That's more than American people. Imagine, they say you cannot even get ammunition in the gun stores. In any case, but anyway, in that sense, it's good because it's a turnaround uh, of, uh, of evil that God has destroyed the reputation of Biden and also the Democratic Party. So let's hope that this is part of the preparations. What can I say? You know, anyway, okay. And like I said, it's happening in Elo, which is a preparation for Shemitah, which who knows, hopefully, will be the preparation for the ghoul itself. Okay. okay. That is a statement about current events. But what I, like I said, what I want to talk about, of course, is the whole concept of how does this work. And for that, I have to introduce ideas, which in many ways are, uh, to a certain extent, esoteric, mystical, but I will try to explain them. Because you really have to understand, because remember one thing. The redemption is mystical. We're not talking here about... People don't understand. They think, well, the gulah is, right? Is there no more anti-Semitism, which, of course, there won't be any, right? Everybody's going to be making a great living, right? Food, health, everything, right? That's not what the redemption means. Didn't mean that in Egypt. What was the essential idea of Egypt? Not just to free the Jews from slavery, although obviously you have to do that, or else you can't do anything right if you don't have that. The essence of the redemption in Egypt was Matan Torah. God said, I have to give you my Torah. You need to observe it, right? And if you observe it, then I will come back. And like I said many times, that's the Tikkun. That's the rectification or the, the correction of creation where God, God re-enters creation. But it can only be done through the Torah. That's the reason for Egypt, redemption. There is no other purpose. You know, I mean, it's nice for God to release all the Jews from slavery. Wow, that's great. That's not why. It's a mystical reason. You see, the plan of God is far greater and deeper than we can imagine. Well, if it's true then, it's true now also. God wants to release the Jews from their captivity, which means in the uh, Garut, in the exile, and so on, for what purpose? For the purpose of coming back to creation, to reveal himself. And therefore, the entire universe becomes different. We have no idea what it means when God is revealed totally and when he's concealed totally. But that's really what it's all about. It's really a mystical idea. That's the reason for redemption. Of course, it's connected with no more sickness, no more death, right? Everybody has parasa, everybody has livelihood. Of course, it's associated with that. But the key concept is to be able to have time to think, to involve yourself in spirituality, you see. And each person will involve himself at his level. That's why Tchiet HaMesim, Resurrection of the Dead, does take time. The Zohar says that Tchiet HaMesim will take 210 years. Everybody thinks when the Mashiach comes, everybody's going to get up. 
No. Everybody will get up eventually. But some people get up right away. Why? Because they were less involved in materialism. And they were much more involved in spirituality, right? So they can get up and enjoy the spirituality of the Messianic age. But then you have people that live, they ate and they grieve Wall Street. That's all they did. Or other things, they owned five cars and four houses or whatever, you see. They were completely immersed in the physical world. And so therefore, they cannot tolerate a Messianic era. So therefore, they need to be purified longer. So they may have to lie in the ground hundred years. Only God knows the exact amount of time that in the Shema, a soul, can tolerate the incredible revolution, revolution, revelation of God's presence. And there are people who will lie for a long time, you see. But in any case, everybody eventually will get up because that's, that is the plan. So therefore, I want to mention certain very important ideas. Okay. We know there's a concept called the Shekhinah, which is the divine presence, you see. The question is, how does the Shekhinah get from where God is? Well, how does God get from wherever he is, right? How did he get to this world, you see? So the answer is, is that God creates ten forces. And in Kabbalah, they call Sefirot. They're forces. But what they really are, basically, is conduits, pipes, through which the Shekhinah goes through. Interesting concept. When God comes down to the world, he comes down in ten pipes. I hate to use that example. It sounds like I'm a plumber, mm. right? But he goes down to what's called conduits, and the Shekhinah within the pipe gives power to whatever the pipe is, you see? And therefore, that's tremendous force, you see? And what does the Shekhinah do when it comes down? It creates the Nishama. We are really a direct product of the spheres. In fact, the Neshama is the greatest creation ever made. We, are, we, we rise far above the level of Malachim. Malachim do not compare to a Neshama. Because a Neshama soul, yes, that's right, a Neshama soul is much greater than a Malach. That's really what he is. So therefore, the neshama is the product of the spheres, you see. Then what God does is he creates, okay, the spiritual world. And that's composed of many different components, among which are the malachim, angels. Now, the, the reality has different levels or dimensions. Actually, it has five there are five different levels of dimen- or dimensions of reality. Okay? We are at the lowest level called the world of action. And the world, it's called the world of action because that's what we do. We have to do action in order to bring down the divine presence. Right? But above us is another world called Yitzira, or formation, which is a world really which is inhabited by angels. Above that is a world or a dimension called Rhea, which is creation, which has its own inhabitants, you see. 
Now, above that is another dimension called absolute. What does that mean? Now, this is very important to understand. You can look at something in different views. If you stand one foot away from somebody, you see him very clearly, right? But what happens if you step back? Then you don't see him as clearly. What happens if between you and him, somebody puts a barrier, a lens, a lens? So that figure, whoever you're looking at, is distorted, you see. What happens if there are two lenses between you and that person, whatever? And there's a greater distortion. So clearly, it makes a difference in terms of your proximity or your closeness to whatever you're looking at. God is, in many ways, God is the same in his relationship to man, you see. You could stand next to God, so to speak, and look at him. Wow. What a view. Or you could stand a thousand miles back, so to speak, and look at God. You see? Now, you're looking at God, which is true, but the difference is view. But it's not only view, the difference is presence. You know, what do you feel when you're a thousand miles away? What do you feel when you're one foot away? And so on. This is a very important concept. Everything, the, the greatest thing that you can possibly imagine is your proximity to God. Everything, everything is that. Everything else is irrelevant because God is the source of all existence. So when you're close to that source, you, wow, you know, you exist in an unbelievable way. You see, the further back you get, right, the more difficult it is. You're not next to the source and so on, you see. That's called the distance. How close are you to God and how far away are you, you see? And that's a very important idea. So when I mean reality, that God created five realities, what that really means is he created different levels of intensity of his image or of him, of the Shekhinah, you see. So the greatest of all places or realities or dimensions, right, it's called, uh, it's really called, which is the future world. In that dimension, the reality of God is absolutely unparalleled, you see. And then below that, that's the future world. Below that is a world called, a dimension called Atsilus, which means God presents himself to human beings, but he's incredibly diminished. However, it's an incredible view. And then as the realities get less, you don't observe him as much. It becomes less and less clear, you see. We in this world, which is the world of action, have almost no view of God, really. That's how far away he is. And not only that, we have a barrier called physical, physicality. We don't see God, we see the physical world. The physical world is a barrier to seeing and experiencing God. That's the problem with the physical world, you see. So imagine, imagine if you could stay in this world, right, and see God in one world above. 
or what he would look like or the intensity of the image be incredible. It would be incredible. We have no idea what that means, right? But is it possible? Is it possible to stand in this world, the world of action, and look into the one right above us, the world of formation, which is inhabited by angels, and see what they see, or experience God the way they experience God? Is that possible? That would be an interesting question. And the answer is? Yes. Yes. It is possible. Not only that, it is possible also to see into the world above that. Yes. Now, the question is how? And the answer is the neshama, soul. The soul has five parts. It has what's called the lowest part, nefesh, because that's what connects you to this world. Remember, the soul is spiritual. But it has a link, like a chain, that connects you to this world. In other words, the neshama is inserted into a physical body, right? And it is connected to this world through the physical body. No problem. So you certainly can see that, you know, you're looking, right? You're really the neshama looking out through your physical body. You don't recognize yourself to be a neshama. You have no idea what that is, right? You think you're a person with a physical body, right? Which you are, but it's a suit of clothing. It's really what it is, you see. Now, imagine you step up into the world above this, right? There's an aspect of the neshama that is linked or connected to that world. That's called the ruach, you see. It's called the ruach, which is the spirit. That's a translation, right? What does that mean? That means the neshama can look into that world as a, uh, because ruach, which is a part of the neshama, is connected to that world. And therefore, if the blindness would be taken away from the ruach of your neshama, you would see into that world. It's an incredible experience. Because you're no longer looking at a physical universe. You're looking at angels. You see. Now, there's a third part of the neshama, which is called also neshama, an individual part, that is connected to the world above that, Bria. That means you are connected to the third level going up, and you can actually experience the resonance of that place beyond belief. There's a fourth part of the neshama called the Chayo. That is connected to Atsilas. That means you are actually connected to a fourth dimension going up. See, therefore it's possible that if you can remove the blinders of the neshama of that part of it, you can actually look into Atsilas. We have no idea what that is. And there's a fifth part called Yechida that is connected to Ilam Haba, the future world. And if you could remove the blinders from that aspect of the neshama, you could see into the future world. You see. Be beyond belief. You don't realize that the neshama of a Jew has five parts. Each part is linked to one of the worlds, of the five worlds, thereby enabling it to experience and see into that dimension. Very important concept. 
you see. So, this is the, the concept of the neshama. Now, what we also see is when the shechina enters the universe, right? It enters the universe, you see. It enters through the spheres, which I told you, which are conduits, which are, allow the divine presence to come down, you see. But then it enters the neshama, you see. And it is through the neshama that the Shekhinah enters the world, which is really interesting. So therefore the neshama is called a gate, a portal. The modern term is portal, right? That the, neshama, that the divine presence goes through the neshama into the world. It's amazing when you think about that. How do we know this? Because there's a posse. There's an actual posse in the Torah that says this. It says, God is commanding the Jewish people to build a temple. And they will make me a Migdash, right, which happened to have been the Mishkan. A Migdash is a residence of God. And I will dwell in them. Now it should have said, they will make me a Mesan Migdash, which is build me a Mishkan, and I will dwell, dwell right, in it, which is the Mishkan. It doesn't say in it, it says in them. Now, wait a minute. Why? We understand that God said, make a Mishkan, so God said, and I will dwell in the Mishkan. So, and I will dwell in it. It doesn't say that. It says, we also a Migdash, and they will make me a Migdash, and I will dwell in them. What does that mean? Because we now understand the entry of God into the world is through the neshama of a Jew. So, then from them, I will now manifest in the place called the Mishkan. But it has to go into the neshama first. We are the entry point of the divine presence into the world. And through us, then it goes to the Mishkan. You see? And that's why it says, even though I'm telling you to build a Mishkan in order for me to reside there, right? But it will only enter through the Nishama, the Shekhati, the Seicham. That's what it says. Very important idea. Okay. Now, this was great. And the truth is, is that the Jews did not need a Mishkan at all. Why do I need a Mishkan if God resides in me? Maybe you can tell me that. Why do I have to go to a place to experience God called the Beis Hamikdash or the Mishkan? Why would I need that for, right? I am the Beis Hamikdash. That's what it means. We are the Beis Hamikdash. We don't need another place to go to experience God. I can experience Him within myself. You see. And the truth is that before the sin of the golden calf, which they did after Matura, that's exactly what the situation was. Any Jew can experience God, right? All he had to do basically was sit down, meditate, and he would actually 
experience the divine presence. You see. But God wants also that his presence should also be experienced outside of you in a local place. Why? Because then the whole nation can gather together. It was a place of tremendous unity. To imagine million Jews go in the time of the temple to offer the Korban Pesach, the Paschal Lamb. What a place. That means, you know, if everybody could experience God by himself, they'd just sit home and do nothing. But God wanted the Jews to come together. It's a collective. So therefore, he also created a place where you want to experience God, which is what you did when you went to the Beit Amigdash. You go to Jerusalem, you go to the Beit Amigdash. You see? So there were two places you could experience God. One is in yourself, or the base Hamikdash. In those days of Moshe Rabbeinu, it was a Mishkan. You see? Because God wanted everybody to be centered as a unit around a building called the base Hamikdash. Or in those days, it was the Mishkan. You see? The problem was this. So a person can experience internally the Shrina. That's the inter- in- in- internality of the Shekhinah. But after the sin of the gold calf, what happened? Well, everything has consequences. Once the person, once the Jews committed the sin of the golden calf, right, then what happened was, is now in order to experience God, it's, you can no longer experience it in yourself. You have to go to a place. And that was the Mishkan. Yeah. So the Mishkan changed. Because you can no longer really experience it in yourself. You'd have to go to the Mishkan to experience God. You see. So, but what's interesting is that even though you would have to go outside of yourself to experience the Shekhinah, Divine Presence, right? The entry point into the creation was still through your Nishama. That didn't change. You see, which is interesting. That doesn't change. So if you ask yourself, who am I? You know what you would say? I am the base of the fish. That's really what everybody is. The problem is, is because of the sin of the golden calf, right? You can only experience God outside of yourself. You have to go to a place that's called the Makam Shechina. Wherever the Shechina is revealed, there you have to go. Which, of course, is terrible. But that is a result of the sin of the gold calf. You see. So that's basically what happened. You now have to go externally to the Beis Hamikdash. How many Beis Hamikdashes are there? Or I should say, how many Mokum Shekhinahs are there? How many places does God... What's the history of the Beis Hamikdash? That's interesting. Was how many different places that God, uh, or historically that is, where God rested his divine presence? Right? Well, most people don't realize that, but you know what the first Makamikdash was? What was the first place, other than within the Neshama, which you know it's, right? You know where it was? Moshe Rabbeinu by the snap, the burning bush. Because Moshe Rabbeinu came to this man, right? And he turned aside to see this incredible miracle, right? Where the bush is not consumed. So all of a sudden he hears a divine voice. 
right, is take your shoes off because the ground that you're standing on is holy. Wait a minute. What do you mean it's holy ground? Holy ground means that this is a place for the divine presence. You see? Because it's holy ground. You've got to take your shoes off. You see? So Moshe Rabbeinu is experiencing the divine presence outside of himself. When you really think about that, you see? And therefore, that is a Mokham English. That is a place of the divine presence. The snare was really the first place that you could say was a residence or a place of the Shrina. It didn't last long, you know, lasted about a week, and then you went, went to Egypt and so on, right? So when you think about that, the first Beis Hamikdash, if you want to call that, or the first place of the Divine Presence is the Sneh. Second place is the Mishkan, right? That we know clear. In the Torah goes the whole concept of the Mishkan, how to build the Mishkan, many, many parashiyas in the Torah that talk about how to build the Mishkan. You see? And we can all, you know, that's part of the idea, we can all that. Why spend so much time on everything about building the Mishkan, all the components, the measurements, right? The components and the measurements. And the answer is, because what the Mishkan is, is a model of creation. What God did is He told the Jews that you need to build a place, Right? that mirrors the creation itself, the whole universe. So, Mishkan, when you look at the Mishkan, if you study the Mishkan, its parts, its place, its measurements, its components, they exactly parallel some aspect of the universe or some aspect of creation. Yes? If you look at the Mishkan with all its measurements, all its components, they actually parallel creation. It's like looking at a little model of New York City where each piece, each building, right, mirrors or parallels a building in New York City, right? If you study the Mishkan, and it's very mystical, right, and the Ramchal wrote a whole sefer about this, it's called Mishkan Eyalyon, where he actually parallels the Beis Hamikdash to the whole creation. And Mishkan yeah. And that's what it is. So you study this Mishkan with all its parts, all the Beis Hamikdash, all its parts. You study the Oren and the table, the Shulchan, you know, and so on, all the different, uh, the Menera. Each one mirrors some aspect of the creation. And you can actually figure out creation by looking at the Mishkan. Because the Mishkan is a model of creation. It's a representation of creation. At the beginning of Ayikra, the Malbim, who's a famous commentary, he goes through a detailed understanding of the Mishkan and what the parallel is in creation. Very interesting. The whole Malbim. Very Kabbalistic. Because by studying the Mishkan, you can actually study the creation itself. By the way, there's a second model. So the first model is the Mishkan. The second model of creation is the human body. That's why we are called Salamalakim. Yeah. The human body mirrors exactly creation. Every organ, blood, you name it, is there because it models, it parallels some aspect of creation. You see. That's why it's interesting in the old days, 
if you went to the Ari and you were suffering from some organ, right, whatever, he would look at you and he would know, well, what, like, where's the pain? Which organ? Oh, that organ means that you did a sin, this particular sin, and it's blocking some aspect, some awe, energy, whatever, in that aspect of creation. And he would tell you what to do, tshuva on. That would be the medicine. Because if you did tshuva, if you repented, and you unblocked that aspect of creation, which means that that aspect of creation can now shine into the organ that represents that aspect, and guess what? It would be cured. It was called a Kabbalistic doctor. I don't know how the AMA would look at that today, you know, the American Medical Association. I don't think they would buy too much. But in those days, the Mikubolim, the Ari, and so on, you know, they could do that. They knew what was wrong with you, not because every sin that you do in some way blocks the divine energy that's supposed to come to that particular organ because you are a model. Just like the model is an exact representation, the original, right? And the original is the whole creation, right? And the model is you. So you can actually figure out what the problem is. Yeah. If we had that knowledge today, it would be incredible because you can cure any disease because all disease is nothing more than the blockage of that divine energy to that organ and because of the sin you did and the sin is what blocks that energy from coming down. So therefore bacteria can come in as a result of that. You see? Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. So that's a second model. So the first is the Mishkan and the second one is the human body itself. That's why we're called Selamalakim, the image of God as we represent the entire creation. But in any case, uh, um, so, so the first was, like I said, the Sneh. The second is the Mishkan. The third was the first Beis HaMikdash. Right? Shlomo Melech built the first Beis HaMikdash. So that's a continuation of the residence of God. See? So that's the third place. That was destroyed. So therefore, the next base of Mikdash, the second base of Mikdash, was built, right, by Ezra and so on. And uh, <clears throat> so that was the um, third place of the base of Mikdash. But remember, the base of Mikdash, if it was ever studied holistically, to actually see the parallel to the entire creation. And what was interesting is that if that was the case, whenever you did something in the base of Mikdash, you brought a korban, sacrificed an offering, whatever, and so on, you were actually triggering that particular energy that the base of Mikdash represented. And that would come to you in some form of a blessing. So that was it's like a trigger device, base of Mikdash, you see. And therefore, as a result of that, the Jews are able to relate directly to creation through the model itself. It's like the model itself was connected to the whole creation. So you can't deal with creation, but you can deal with the model itself. And the model was a trigger. You see? So that's how you're actually able to influence so many different things. You see? So what you begin to realize is knowledge of this is far deeper 
And then, well, it was a building that you brought sacrifices. No. It was the power of that model to influence the entire creation. In any case, and then, now, but the problem was that that base amygdala represented the universe, all of creation, as it was then. That's what the model does. It represents everything only then. But what about after the Tikkun? What about after the Mashiach comes? Right? So that base amygdala will now represent, right, a different universe. It will represent a creation that has been rectified by the Mashiach or by the Jewish people. That is why the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi, the third Beis Amigdash, right, in Yechezkel, in Yechezkel, he talks about building the third Beis Amigdash. That's where it is. And what's interesting is God told Yechezkel, even in Yechezkel, the, uh, the Ruchamnetzah destroyed the second Beis Amigdash, the uh, first Beis Amigdash, so God told Yechezkel, you need to describe the plans of the third base of the dust, or, you know, the future and so on. So Yechezkel said, what do you mean? You just, they just destroyed the base of the dust. Why would I want to give them the plans for a third? You see? So God said, no. You have to understand that the base of the should represent the reality that is present at that time. And by understanding the third base of the dust, you understand that there will be a rectification, or else there can't be a third base amigdash, because what's it going to represent? You see. So on the contrary, studying the third base amigdash, which hardly anybody does, really reveals the creation as it will be after the rectification, after the tikkun, which is the base amigdash of Cheskel Hanavi of the third base amigdash. So the secret of what the universe will look like is really the third base of the curse because it represents the reality after Yechezkel. Interesting concept. And so on. So therefore, he's able to do that. In any case, where is the Shekhinah today? Right? We know that the Shekhinah never leaves. People think the Shekhinah left. It didn't leave. Where is it today? Okay, but really, I'll tell you where it is. Since the Shekhinah left. In the marriage. Who? In the marriage. In the marriage? In the marriage. So when you, when you unify, when you have that unification, you're bringing it into the world. You're bringing that presence of the Shekhinah. Yeah, but where is a place that actually resides? In the cock? Yes. Correct. People do not realize that the Shekhinah never left. It moved. Why? Because we moved. In other words, the Shekhinah represents the exile. We went into exile, so the Shekhinah went into exile, which means it left its place. But we went throughout the entire planet. The Shekhinah doesn't leave the Beis HaMikdash. So what it did do is it went to the outer wall. So the Kaisal Ma'aravi is really the Beis HaMikdash of today, you see. And that is why if you go to the Kaisal Ma'aravi, if they ever let you in today, because you can't even get into Israel today, right? Uh, you know, and you go to the Kaisal, 
you feel something different. What are you feeling? You're not feeling a war. There's something, what you're feeling is some type of presence. Presence of which there's a closeness. What is that? That's the Shina. Except it's been severely reduced. Obviously, you know, it's been severely reduced because of all the sinning going on and so on, right? And it has moved. But it never leaves the base Amikdash. It just went to the outer wall. Because we have left. So we're in exile. So that's called the Golos Ashkina. Isn't that interesting? That the base Amikdash, the Kosel Maravi, is really the last base Amikdash. You see. And hopefully, of course, when, the, when, this, uh, when we overthrow the mosque and all that, then the Shekhinah will go back to where it was initially. <clears throat> so the Shekhinah, the place of the Shekhinah itself mirrors the exile itself, you see. And so far, that's basically where it is. By the way, the question that I ask, could you imagine, since you have a soul that is connected right, to every place in the, all the upper dimensions. Because you and the Shoma has five parts. There are five realities of dimensions and you are linked to each one. Right? The problem is, is that your ability to be conscious of four of those realities is blocked. You can only be conscious of this world. Nefesh. And the nefesh part of your Shoma can only see this world. Cannot see anything else. But what is interesting is that God made it possible for a Jew to see into every world. What is that called? Prophecy. What is Nevoah? What is prophecy, really? And what they say, you know? So there are different levels of prophecy, and I'd like to tell you what they are, you know? And it's very important because all of this will be restored. What a prophet see? Well, he went through an entire program, so to speak, okay? And then he would close his eyes, right? And he would be seized in a trance. And he couldn't move. He was paralyzed. The only thing that worked was his brain, his imagination, and his intellect. And what God did is he, uh, God fed his mind with images, and understandings, which spoke about messages and information. Now, the interesting thing about a Novi, a prophet, the great prophet, Yishayoha Novi, and uh, Yermio, and so on, they were, and now you can appreciate that, they were able to see into Bria. It's beyond belief. But that's not what they saw. They were able to turn on their neshama and all of a sudden the blockage would be removed and it was as if they were standing in Rhea. However, they were able to look into Atsilas beyond belief. They could see how he revealed himself to their imagination as the intensity of Atsilas but they were standing, so to speak, in Bria. 
one level below. And that was beyond belief. That's what these people were able to do. We talk about Shmuel Hanavi, right? Yishayo, right? Now, Moshe Abenu, who was the greatest of all prophets, what did he see? He was incredible. Mm-hmm. And you'll see what the difference between him and everybody else. They saw it in a trance. He was conscious. He was awake, which is beyond belief. And what he did is he also stood in the dimension called Bria, right? But he was only one lens separating him from Atsilas. It was he's literally at the border of the reality called Atsilas. And he was literally at that border so he could look into Atsilas with the greatest clarity ever given to a human. Now we had to have that clarity. Why? Because he received the Torah. He received the Torah with that clarity. You see? So the Torah was given with that clarity where you could stand in Bria and look right into Atsilas, although you're standing in Bria. You see? So you literally, uh, I like to say, it's like standing at this door, glass door. You're on one side, and there's somebody right on the other side. There's only one pane of glass separating you. That's an unparalleled look. That was the Nebu of Moshe Rabbeinu. It was total clarity while he was awake. And you needed to have that because he could not distort the Torah. Because once God was giving the Torah, he couldn't have Moshe Rabbeinu looking in and making a mistake. You see? Now, after Moshe, things got worse. Nobody was as great as Moshe. So what happened is they began to stand back in Bria, in the world of creation. And they could still look into Atsilas. But they were no longer one glass away. Now they were like, you know, a mile back, two miles back, depending on how great of a prophet you were. But the main idea of prophecy is you were able to look into Atsilas, which is the highest world in this world besides the future world, of the appearance of God. We have no concept of what even that is, and so on, you see. So they all stood in Bria, looking into Atsilas. The question is, what was the distance in Bria? Were you right up against the glass, or you were a mile back, two miles back, three miles back, you see? But they were all phenomenal prophets. Incredible. So there's actually a way to do this. In those days, they used to have schools of prophecy. Yeah, you can register. You can register to be a Navi. And they actually taught you how to do it. You had to meditate on divine names. You had to be tremendous personality, character, midas tovers, emun and betochen, all kinds of... There's a whole program that you had to follow, you know, but at the end of the program, depending on how much devoted you were, you would go through the process, meditate on the divine name, and then automatically you would be paralyzed, right? But you were not asleep. You just could not move, so you wouldn't distract by the movement of the body. Because when you can move, you know, everybody's got all kinds of twitches and all that, right? You were distracted. So it would stop you could look uh, and you would have that prophetic vision. And those, why would a guy want to be a Navi? 
I mean, other than the experience of seeing something that is absolutely beyond belief, right? The reason why you'd want to be a Novi is for all the divine secrets. See, people don't understand. You know, there are only about 48 Novium that told the future what would be. But the Chazal tell us that there were, there were over a million prophets in Israel. Not just 48. Yeah, over a million prophets in Israel all doing this. Can you imagine the registration of the yeshiva? Right? Now the question is, why would they want to do this? You know? And the answer is to not only experience God, the, the vacus, the attachment to God, right? But to experience divine secrets. Yeah. Because the information that you were fed in the imagination and in the intellect was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's all the secrets of the Torah. That's why they did it. Even though they were never appointed to go out and speak to the Jewish people about repenting, only 48 of them did that. Everybody, most of them, never had anything to do. We don't even know who they were. But there were over a million prophets in Israel. And it was available to anybody, basically. You see. Imagine that this is what people want to do. So that's the greatest experience ever known is a prophetic experience. It was the greatest spiritual experience you can ever have because you could look into Achilles, which is the highest world that God's presence is there, and you could look at it standing on the world right below it in Bria. Phenomenal. The difference between Moshe and everybody else The difference between Moshe and everybody else is the distance and therefore the clarity. Now, as time went on and the first place I made this was destroyed, so what happened? Right? And here's what happened. And that's Yechezkel. Yechezkel, as great as he was, was an inferior prophet to the others. Because since the base I this was destroyed, that means the divine presence we see it. So that's what I mean. They said, I mean, this is destroyed. So the divine presence goes back, recedes. So what does that mean to a prophet? Well, what it means, you can no longer stand in Bria. You could stand two down in Yitzira. So Yecheskel stood, not in Bria, but one down in Yitzira. But he also could look into but he was like a hundred miles away. He wasn't even in Bria. He was in a, a much lower world, you see. But at least what he saw was the view to Atsilas. That's why Yechezkel is an inferior prophet. His prophecy was greatly inferior to any of the others, you see. But he was still a Novi. He was still a prophet. Because he can look into Atsilas. Then after the second base I mean, this was destroyed, you couldn't even do that. So you, don't, you did not have Nebuah anymore. So what did you have? You were able to stand in Yetzira, right? And not look into Atsilas. But you could speak to the people in Yetzira, Malachim. That's called Ruch HaKodesh. Divine Inspiration. That's the real Ruch HaKodesh, where you can be conscious of Yitzira, that world, 
which is right above ours, and you can actually speak to the Malachim, because that's where they are. You see? So that's called Ruach HaKadosh. And their Tanoim used to do that. He used to close their eyes, do whatever you have to do to get there, and all of a sudden be conscious of Yitzhira. Mamash, be conscious of it. It was with the imagination. And then they used to speak to the Malachim. You find that with Tir Rabbi Yishmael Atzmoy in Yom Kippur. And they asked, you know, by the uh, Hadrian who wanted to kill the ten, the ten Tanoim, right? So they told Rabbi Shmuel, go up and ask if this decree can be rescinded or not. So that's what he did. We say it in Yom Kippur. The tear of Rabbi Yishmuel Atzmoy and Rabbi Yishmuel purified himself because that's what you have to do. Be And he went up. Wait a minute. What do you mean he went up? No elevator, right? What it did means he consciously became aware of Yitzira. <coughs> and he was able to speak to a malach. So he asked the malach. Mama, speaking to a malach. Because he's now conscious of that world. You see? So he asked the malach, is this decree reversible or not? So the malach said, no, not reversible. I have heard it's not reversible. And that, those are the ten martyrs, right? But what did he experience? He experienced Ruach HaKodesh. Because you could stand in Yitzhira, Yitzhira stood in Yitzhira, and he could look into Atsilas, that was a real Navi. But once you could no longer look into Atsilas and only speak to the denizens of Yitzhira, that was called Ruach HaKodesh. That ended. Once there was no longer Red Heifer or Aduma, could not remove the tumor, and therefore you cannot experience that Ruach HaKodesh. You see? So that second way of experiencing that also disappeared. You see? <clears throat> and so on. You know? It's funny, the, 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 they talk about, so uh, one of them, I think, was Mechun Ben Akona, he was experiencing Ruach HaKodesh. He was like out of it, you know? But somebody had to ask him something or talk to him. So what do you do? So he took a, uh, an article, which is Tomei, and he touched him. So immediately he became Tomei, and he immediately woke up. Because you cannot be Tomei and walk into Yitzhiba. It's funny, that's how he woke him up. He got him out, you know. You know doesn't record what he said to him when he pulled him out. You know? Why? Oh, why did he do this, you know? You know, this experience is worth a million bucks. What are you doing, you know, and so on, you know. What would people pay? You could do it to people today. What could you charge them? You know, I'm not talking about getting high on a chemical. It's nonsense. You know, when you take these kind of things, you know, uh, opiates and all that, you know, that's a chemical change. Because the brain can change chemically, no problem. I'm, I'm talking about the real McCoy. You actually go there, talk to Malachim. I mean, it's beyond belief, and so on. And Jews did this for a thousand years. You know, it's only so it ended about 200 when the Paraduma was gone. You could no longer become purified, and the Paraduma ended. You know, so you could no longer become purified. You could not become tame, right? So you could no longer have forget about the war, so that was the destruction of the temple. The divine presence you see that, but even uh, you could not experience what occurred. But there are still things you can think 
there's still things you can do today, believe it or not. You know, not those two. Those are the greatest of the, you know. You can have Gil Elio, Elio appears to you. You can have Chaloim, prophetic dreams, and so on. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and so on, you know. But the main idea is that these are the different availabilities toward a person who really wants to be spiritual. You could really do this, you know. And all of this shows the love of God. Why would God allow this? Can you imagine, even though you're stuck on earth, you can actually see into a different dimension? What would that do to your moonah? Incredible. I mean, you know, it's like uh, you're there. You, know, you're not, you don't believe in God. You know God. You see Him. You talk to the Shrina. It's like we can only imagine. All of this will be restored in the Messianic era. You see? But the beauty of it is that you will, it will be restored internally, not externally. Because even if you don't go to Jerusalem in the base of Migdash, you can do it what's called in place, shelter in place, as they say, right? You can actually uh, speak to God in that sense, you know, uh, uh, in, in the Messianic era. You see, that's what's a very important idea to understand these ideas, because that leads me into the next topic on which I will have to stop, because it's going to be too long, and that is what does all this have to do with the, the Mashiach, and how does all this come about? And the answer is through the third temple. The third temple to come to it. The third temple is what restores all of this. And that is the Messianic era. That third temple is just is not just the third temple. It is the restoration of internalizing God in you. So Vishokhati Basilikom and I will dwell in them actually becomes operative in the Messianic era because the third temple appears. And it must appear because that's the gateway to the whole world of Yetzira. You see which I will explain next week. I know it's a little heavy, but listen, I, you know, I try to be very clear. You know, look, my goal, my goal is that you shouldn't be confused. My goal is not to make it easy in the sense that I'm going to talk about things which are simple and light, which you all know about anyway. This is the problem with a lot of lectures. You know, you already know the ideas. So what's the guy saying that I don't know? Yeah, maybe he'll bring another verse, another posuk, you know. But if you think about it, 90% of what you hear, you already know. You may not know it in that way or with that posuk, but you already know the idea. This is part of the problem. And what was that? Our main priority now should be studying the third Yes. And the reason for that is because they don't know what I told you. That's why. They don't realize what the third temple is. The third temple is the gateway, as we will see next week, is the conduit to get back into Eilim Yetzirah, to get back. But I'll just leave you with this haunting thought. The third temple is the temple in Yetzirah that is brought down to the earth. Yes. Yes. Heaven is called the Yerushalayim Shomailah. 
Jerusalem from above. This prayer, you know, which is the third temple. It's exact mirror copy of the third temple. You see? So that's the gateway of this incredible ruach energy into the world, right? But wait a minute. What happens if you took that third temple or you took that Besamikdash in Oilamisira and you brought it down and it becomes physical? It still maintains its property as a gateway. So all of a sudden, Oilamisira pours out of that third temple into this world. Then you answered my question. Yes. We don't need to study it. It's already built. Just no, it's built. All the dimensions, this tall and this high and this product and this and all But when you study it, when you study it, the merit of studying it is bringing it down. Correct. That's the problem. We have to do everything. God waits for us. He's a shadow. He waits. So when you study about the third temple, you actually bring it, you build it brick by brick. And then it manifests what you did. So there it comes. Okay, so what book do you recommend for us to start reading and learning on of the Beit HaMikdash Hashishi? There is a book written on the third Beit HaMikdash. I think it's written by a guy, Makover, M-A-K-O-V-E-R, you know. In fact, they have models of the third temple. Why? You know? What? I happen to have a model of the third temple. But the problem is, it's all cut out. I never put it together. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. So wait, Smakavor is the name of the author? I think that's his name. Yeah, I have it at my house. What's, what's the name of the book? Third Temple. I think so. By Sashlishi. It's an English book, but, you know. But that's the incredible thing. That that's why the Besamikdash, the third temple, is part of the messianic process, because it's the only way to bring down early Mitzira into this world. Where you don't have to go up there, it will come down here. But the gateway remains the same. So what happens is beyond belief. That means the energy, the presence of God, the Shechina, of what He looks like in that place, is actually appears here in this world. It's beyond belief. That is why the Messianic era is completely un- it's not possible to understand because you are looking at a universe that runs by different rules and regulations. It's not the same universe. It is a universe of Yitzira where angels inhabit. So then what is it? We don't know. That is why you have never seen anything like it. People don't understand what's going to happen. It's not just, well, there's the wars, and now nobody gets sick. This is nothing compared to what we It could be a universe of which we are not, under- we do not understand its laws. That is how magnificent that universe is. Yeah. So when we, yeah, you go. Yeah. yeah. When we go to sleep, and because we know we say, Morning, now that we are done. That we what? So well then, at night, while we're sleeping. That's a part of the Nishoma sense, yeah. So where do we go? Because in order to not be coming, go to a mixer. So people don't go to a mixer every day. No, no, that's not Ruach HaKadosh. That's a natural part of sleep. The part of the Nishoma goes away. So where does the Nishoma go? Probably the Kalit. And sometimes, depends when. 
No, something, yeah, you can go into part of the summer goes into the next world above us is Yitzira, right? And you can actually talk to an angel. Yeah, unbeknownst to you. And then you come back, that comes back into your body when you wake up, and all of a sudden, you ever have a prophetic dream? That's it. Somehow, it went up, spoke to a couple of people, angels, they told you information, you came down and you were immediately aware of that information, but you don't know, you don't remember how you got it. That's, a, that's called a, a prophetic dream. A, a prophetic dream. Well, what about when you remember the whole dream and you know, and you're crying, like wake up crying. Then you also wake up with the emotion of having been there. That's a higher level of spirituality. Most people don't. They just know the information. They don't have the emotional component. Can you No, you don't understand that happens at the end. Okay. There's no repetition. Okay. There's no more sinning. In fact, there's no free will. When you get up from the dead... I don't think that they would well, we want them to be witness of that. No, there's no more free will, so there's no avoidable. Okay. And it's all reward. Reward means you have to, you have to be ready. Mm-hmm. We all accept die. Accept the reward. Right. We all die. At the end of time, we all die. That's the, the problem. Reward, it's, so we're we, all going to be resurrected. And yes. And No, because that awakening that is done. part of the reward. Okay. So you, you don't deserve it. Right. Now, you first, you first, you see? So my other concept that I wanted to um, make a comment or find out more about was when you were saying that when you were looking for Hashem in different places or where he resides. And it's interesting for me to hear everybody's different concept of where they see Hashem. Now. Because I believe that they were all right. It wasn't just one place. Because <coughs> when you are sleeping in a crib, you see Hashem like that. No, but that's different. That's not... I'm no, so much true. No, I, you can see Hashem in terms of His products, what He can do, right. and the miracles He can perform. That's not... That's my umkumach in the circle. How deep is your works? Yeah, how great your works? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the real presence. Mm-hmm. Different. Okay, so my question is on that, is that um, we always pray for the Shekhinah to uh, dwell in our home, for uh, the Shekhinah to dwell in the marriage. So what aspect of the Shekhinah are we praying for in those instances? It's a a very good question. Thank you. If you'll notice the word ish and isha is ish Mm -hmm. with a yud and a k, and the man the yes. Ish, which is a yud, aleph yud shin, mm-hmm. and the woman is aleph shin hey, the hey. So together, yud k means God is in the, the union, right? Right. 
Yeah, but what that means is this, you see, which is interesting. It goes back to what I said. Remember, there's God, and he creates what's called the spheres, which are a conduit through which he flows through. Mm-hmm. This is the description, right? Mm-hmm. And so on, you know. And those spheres, therefore, have the ability of creating reality. <coughs> the first thing the spheres create is Shama, right? So it comes out that the Shama is connected to the Shrinah. Right? Mm-hmm. So the question is, to what extent does the neshama feel that? So, if a man and his wife are very spiritual, then their neshama will be, it's already connected. The question is, to what extent is it cognizant that it's connected to the shrina? And that depends on the acts of the man and the woman. We're all connected to the shrina. Because that's what an Ishama is. You know what I'm saying? That's the reality of the Ishama. But the question is, the ability of the Ishama to feel its connection depends on its acts. See? So, Ish and Isha, Yud and K, means that the man and the woman as a team are connected, right, to God. That's really what it is, right? The question is, can they experience that connection or not? And that depends on their acts. Okay. So that's what you mean. So how do you how do you explain when you go somewhere and you feel the, the presence of the Shekhinah, we say, we use that term, where we feel the holiness, or, so what are we experiencing if it's not really, if the Shekhinah is really at the Western Wall? The answer is you're experiencing the Shekhinah within you. Igniting it within yourself. Correct. Because that's really where it is. You know, even though you feel that you're experiencing there something, an external presence, not really. You're really experiencing something in you, except you're attributing it to that place. Really, it's you. You don't realize. The screen is within you. You all, you have to tap into it. It's like they want, to, they want somebody to cut forever. Where is God? Let me ask him that. You know what he answered? He always come up with these incredible statements. Wherever you let him in. Just let him in. You know, what does that mean? What do you mean let him in? He's already in you. Just let him into your conscious mind so you can experience. When you experience God, it's you within you. That's a profound secret that I dwell in their midst, not in the base of Mikdash. Except if you want to experience me, you have to go to that place. But really, it's within you. Except you are fitting it outside. You see? So there's no places that are higher than other places. Besides for the Western Wall. Well, there are places. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, well, in that sense. Yeah. There are places, right, that allow you more to experience in yourself than others. Got it. Is, is that a, a portal that's <clears throat> open more in the yeah. Correct. The greater portal, exactly. And That's really what we're looking at. We're looking for portals. Right. Gates. Vessels. Yeah, the greatest gate of all, like I say, in the Messianic era, is the descent of that third base of Mikdash. And we cannot even... for each person? Because each person's spiritual connection is different. What's interesting about that is that it probably is, 
but there's a minimum. And that minimum is beyond belief. So you don't have to cry about the fact that, you know, but, but there's no question that some incredible tzaddik will experience more because he was close to God all his life. Because remember, this is the time of reward, you know, but there's no question that the minimal is beyond belief. You know, the interesting thing about it is that every guy know this, they won't experience. They'll have to go over to you and somehow beg you, give me something of what you're feeling. You see? Because a guy has no food. He has an ishama, which he does. That was a gift of God to a guy. <clears throat> but he doesn't have four parts. He only has one, the nefesh. That's why a guy really, in many ways, cannot ascend. He can't to his nefesh. Because the nefesh itself is divided into those five parts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like the nefesh of the nefesh. So, so he can experience somewhat, you know. But the, he will immediately, when he comes into your presence, he will immediately feel this incredible uh, rush of a divinity which he has never experienced before. And he's going you know, to have guys hanging around you that he won't believe. Can you I ask know. a question about um, bringing it back to Purim for a second? Purim? Yeah, because when you were saying about ascending and finding out about a decree, it reminded me of the decree that they wanted to find out if it was written in the stone, if it was written in blood. That wasn't Purim. That wasn't? No, no. If it was no, that was Yom Kippur. Well, that we dominated on Yom Kippur. No, that wasn't Talmud. That was Adrian. Wanted to kill the ten stages. I thought that during forum, though, it happened. Uh, Didn't it happen? No. 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 Didn't didn't somebody say it can be changed because it's not made in blood? All the crucifixions. What I'm referring to is something which happened at the time of Hadrian, the ten Arugi Malchus. The ten martyrs that were killed uh, for Hadrian, the, the uh, emperor. I was talking about. No, I have a question. Okay, so two questions. One, so the Shekhinah is connected to all the Nishama. So yes. is that why all the Nishama have to be down in order for the Mashiach to come? Well, so in order to be released. No, in order to do the job, all the Nishama have to be down. Each neshama has a certain portion uh, uh, in the job. So if one neshama hasn't come down yet, then that portion is not done. So the tikkun is not complete. The shir can't come. <clears throat> That's why everybody has to be born before Mashiach comes. And then all of them together will have completed the task, mitzvahs and so on. Then Mashiach can come. But if there's somebody still up there, Job isn't done. So Mashiach can't come. I have a question. Okay, let's say um, a soul dies. Yeah. Okay, and then it takes a full year for it to find its place in Shemayim. Right? So then let's say if, if next year is the, God willing, the beginning of the Yobel, how do we uh, explain the people who are dying, let's say, now? Like, how do we explain for them to come back down in time for the Mashiach to come. Do you follow around coming? Well, 
it's what we're perceiving in the air, but it doesn't mean that's how it is in heaven. Is that true? Well, each person will have to complete it before the Mashiach comes. But they don't have to physically be here, but their tikkun could be finished, and then they pass away, and then they just come back when it's resurrection. Yeah, that. yeah. Oh, so they don't, all the Mishnahs don't have to be down. They just have to be their tikkun finished. Yes, that's right. Got it. Okay. And then the next question I had is that... Um, you said that the presence of the Shekhinah is severely reduced by the Kotel right now. Yes. So, okay, so, um, so didn't we say that um, the Pekidah, when the Pekidah happened, um, the Mashiach is released, and that's also uh, from the Klippah, and then that's a, a form of the Shekhinah also from its Klippah eventually. Yes. So how is that present? going to be felt to us clear, clearer if the Beth HaMikdash is not there yet in that no. time period where it's still not here like are we going to feel it more does it the Mashiach has to contend with evil first mm-hmm. when I talk about the Beth HaMikdash coming down it will come down after he has been released and is able to now bring down that holiness. But first his job is to destroy evil. You see that from the Torah and so on, you know, that he will go to nations. Uh, so the base of this will not come down until he has completely vanquished the nations. However, what will happen, uh, the base of this will be built before the Mashiach ben David. <coughs> before ben David comes. So we're really talking about Mashiach when Yosef, his first stage, and then after he completely vanquishes evil, then you'll have the base of Mikdash coming down, and then after that, <clears throat> then you have the war of Goy to Mogoy, because once the base of Mikdash comes down, then everybody goes crazy, because they realize their way of life is over, right? And then you have Mashiach and David, and then you have uh, the Messianic era. So, okay, so it's so a period of stages. If there's a pepper preparation for us now, let's say, um, <coughs> the, to like, we say that like um, Elul is a preparation for Rosh Hashanah. Yes. Okay. Um, and then uh, the year before Yovel is that preparation as well. So do, are we going to have a preparation where we start elevating to receive the presence of the Shekhinah? Yes, I believe we will. I believe a secret lies in Mishnah that I was going to talk about in next what? week. The Mishnah Mat. <clears throat> yeah. The Mishnah is the Mishnah. Yes. And I mentioned over time, yeah, but I want to bring it in context um, um, next week when I talk about that, yeah. Because uh, I, I believe that God wants to restore Torah to the Jewish people. In fact, that's a motto that I feel is very important, you know, to restore all the greatness to Jewish people. And I believe it can be done through the study of Mishnayis Be'iyon in depth. Because the Mishnayis is the entire oral law. The entire oral law. People underestimate what that is. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that the oral law is, uh, is a totality of Torah. 
Mm-hmm. And if you studied the oral law, it's as if you fulfilled the oral law. I mentioned that, you see. So when you study Mishnah, it's not only when you have studied the entire oral law, you will have fulfilled the entire oral law. So just by studying that, uh, and I, I brought you the Chazal, mm-hmm. which is an incredible Chazal, and it's what it means, you know. Ein hagluyus misconsoys. The exiles can only be gathered. This is the end. Ever only because of schus, the merit, limit mishnais. That's that. Tremendous. In Sav. It's incredible. And the reason for that is because this has to precede the Mashiach. God will not bring a being, a human, of that stature to a nation that is steeped in evil, tumor, corruption, and everything else that of tragically the Jews are involved with. You know, we don't even know what's going on with the Jewish people. The Jews are vanishing. I mean, there will always be a certain amount of people, Jews, you know. Uh, I mean, it's a great deal to talk about that, how to solve the problem. Uh, I believe that it's possible to solve the whole problem. But anyway, but uh, <clears throat> you will not bring the Mashiach to a nation that is absolutely degraded. Where one is? Go to Manhattan. You know how many Jews are in Manhattan? You go to L.A. Mm-hmm. You know how many Jews are in L.A.? There's a half a million Jews in L.A. That's why I want to, you know, most of them are gone. And they're all involved, and we know what goes on in L.A. You know, all the homosexuals, it's incredible. You know, like every, every fifth person you want to talk to wants to become a lady. Oh, man, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like, what is this? They're crazy, you know? Or it, it, <laughs> like I told you, we live in Memtesharit Tumah. That's I meant to give a whole on that. That's really what it is. We live in the 49 levels of Tumah, and God said enough is enough. That's why he's ending it. Because it's irreversible. It really is. Because once they've made that constitutionally correct, it's irreversible. I mean, you cannot discriminate against some kid that says, I'm, I want to be a girl. You know? And I understand that kids can uh, change their body parts without even consent of their parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about evil that you've never seen before. Right. I mean, what do you mean, a kid? Are you crazy? Well, so he has no idea. What does an 18-year-old kid know about uh, being a girl or a boy? You know, how many, how, many, how many guys? Yeah, because let's say a guy's got four sisters and he's the only boy. Of course he wants to be a girl because they're getting all the attention. Right? So what does that mean? He's going to perform a... What is this? What does the kid know? Yet they have permitted this. You have no idea the evil of that. And the abortions afterwards? Oh, I mean, that's like, it, yeah, you can kill, what is that, 24-hour period? You kill the kid. Legalized murder. Legalized murder. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we cannot even begin to understand the... It's happening now. Yeah. They killed... Yeah, a fully grown kid. Girl born, murder him. It's, it's, it's all murder. They're all murderers. You know, we have no idea what's going on. So, you know... So, I mean, the question is, how long will God tolerate this? And America is supposed to be the showcase of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Everywhere else, it's probably worse. You know? That's all, you know? Uh, I, I believe that's why, basically, it's really over. You know? Uh, like I say, you know? But, um, yeah. 
I'm just talking about, you know, how everything has to change and so on, you know. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> what has to happen with the Shiach, you know, the whole concept of... Uh, the beginning of the end or the end of the end? <laughs> the beginning of the end, I think, or the end of the end? Yeah. No, it's not the end of the end. It's the beginning of the end. Well, over means that God has uh, uh, decreed that I'm ending it. So it's the beginning of the end. Rabbi, do you still think that it's going to be within eight and a half years? Because it was nine and a half years. I know. Um, I, I think it'll be quick. I want to tell you something. We cannot even imagine how bad the world is now. What's it going to look like in the end of years? Scary. Scary is right. Scary is right. No, it's, not, it's not like go anywhere. It's everywhere the same. Or what? You can't do anything anymore. The what? They're gone. Who? Yeah. Yeah, if you come out in any which way, with a preference of man, woman, you are uh, persecuted, yeah. I mean, you hear stories, you can't believe it, you know, what's going on. And wow. it's going to get much worse, much worse. So, what, what, I mean, God, you know, what, what's God going to do? Look at this. No. Is it going to destroy his world? You know? Flooding uh, and fires and everything? Yeah, yeah. In Europe, I yes. see Crazy 118 degrees. I hear that in you know, a whole bunch of countries. Fires, floods, uh, extremes, tsunami. earthquakes. I heard somebody call it earth. What's it called? Earth Earth And they all say, you know, they're all saying it's, uh, well, it's, uh, it's global, global, warming. global warming, exactly. Why don't they just realize because they don't, because they don't see God as the determinant of everything. What it is, no. So they, they're going to have a rude awakening. What can you say? Okay, so again, I, I know I say this a lot, but I feel like everyone, we all need to hear it again. So it's going to get worse. We're still going to see worse coming in our, you know, on the screen of the global world. Yeah. The stage of the global world. How? Can we, what do you recommend us to do to keep us grounded in our bitachon and, and to see clearly that Hashem's hand, like what do you recommend us to keep us going, to fuel us through this time? Because we obviously all have to live through it in order to get to the prize. Yeah, so know. how can we live through it in a way where it's, you know, easier for us and smoother ride? And There's only one way to do that. You have to learn Torah. You have to learn Torah. There's no other way. Because as long as you're learning Torah, you are connected to the message, consciousness of what it's really about. So because of that, you can hang on. If you abandon the Torah, if you don't learn the Torah, in whatever form, I don't care if it's a Muslim Sefer, a Shulchan Aruch, a story, there's so many stories out there, so you know, mm-hmm. you have to do something to involve yourself in limonatur. Uh, okay. If not, you'll go. It's like a life raft. If your death goes alive, you have uh, subjected yourself to the sea. Is the Torah a portal also? 
Yes. To us and Hashem. Hashem. Terror is an incredible portal. It's the greatest of all portals. Mm -hmm. It's the greatest of all portals. It's a protection, also. And doesn't it, when you learn Torah... The word Mishnah Mm -hmm. is the same letters as Neshama? Yeah. Mm. Right? Yeah. The word Mishnah also is the Hebrew word. If you learn Mishnah, Mishane, you change. Mm. Right? What do you change? So the word Mishnah changes in the Shama, but at what level? So the word Mishnah also is Nun Shem Hashem. You change the Neshama where it experiences the name of God at the 50th level of Kedusha. Wow. Nun Shem Hashem. That's what the, that's what the Medjah says. <coughs> you know. That's beautiful. So you could change your own reality. Yes, definitely. That's what, that's what Torah does. That's it. Yes. Changing your own reality. <laughs> In fact, it's so powerful what God actually says, if they want to abandon, they should abandon me. There's Torah, but my law, my Torah, don't abandon. Why? or Shabbat. Because the light in it, Machzir and the Mutter, will restore them. The Torah in and of itself will ignite the spark of the Neshama to reattach. In and of itself. Because the Torah really is part of God in that sense. It is commandments of God. It's part of, it's, uh, part of the Bansha. See? So that's the, really the only way you have to, in some way, learn Torah at whatever level, whether it be learning Chumash, Tanakh, a Musa Sefer, even a story Sefer, whatever, there's all these stories out there now, mm-hmm. you know? That's the only way to maintain mm-hmm. your uh, attachment to, uh, to Judaism. It's like being in, <coughs> I got a vision, it's like being in, in the eye of the storm. In the eye of the storm. Yeah, the only way is peaceful and beautiful. But you could see what's going on. The rain. But you're in the eye of the storm, and in the eye of the storm, nothing's happening. It's all beautiful and peaceful. And that's exactly what the, what the Torah does. That's the way it's Yeah, it's the only real way. <coughs> you know? So next week I want to comp- uh, go much more to, further into the concept of what the third base of the really does. Mashiach and what God will do 